heart of every man craves a great adventure, but life doesn't usually feel that way. Jesus speaks of narrow gates and wide roads, but the masculine journey is filled with many twists and turns. So how do we keep from losing heart while trying to find the good way when life feels more like a losing battle than something worth dying for? Grab your gear and come on a quest with your band of brothers who will serve as the guides in what we call the masculine journey. The masculine journey starts here now. Welcome to the Masculine Journey. We are so excited to join you today and so just thrilled, really, that you would tune your radios to listen to some of the stuff that God has given us over the period of the last few years as we've been on this Masculine Journey together. For those who are not familiar, a lot of what we speak of in the Masculine Journey comes from John Eldridge's Wild at Heart. And so today we have something that's kind of at the heart of Wild at Heart. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Which is a question that most every man faces to some extent in his life, and one of those that we definitely need an answer to. And that question is, Al. Robbie? Yeah. Dillmore, do you have what it takes? Yeah, do you have what it takes? And so we're going to enter into sort of a three-part series on do you have what it takes, Uh with today being, do you have what it takes dealing with doubt? Because one of the first steps, <laughs> when all of a sudden God has you in this place where he is going to um, help you with that question, is is that there may be some doubt involved. And we, of course, we've got some wonderful clips. We are joined by Vinny Menino. And, you know, we've known for many years, I guess for 85 now, pretty close, that Vinny has what it takes. So we're going to get to hear some really cool Vinny stories today. But we're going to start off with this clip that a lot of you are probably familiar with the movie Back to the Future. And in this movie, there comes a point where Marty's father, who at this point in time in 1955 is a young boy in high school, and he didn't know. It kind of got messed up. He was supposed to take on Marty in this particular scene. And when he opened up the car door, rather than being Marty, somebody that he knew he had what it took to fight it turned out to be Biff, which Biff being the bully of the school and one gigantic man, all of a sudden, uh, George finds himself a little bit overwhelmed in this situation. And we're going to find out, does George have what it takes? Hey, you, get your hands off. Oh, I think you got the wrong car, McFly. George, help me, please. Just turn around, McFly. And walk away. Are you deaf, McFly? Close the door and feed it. No, Biff. You leave her alone. All right, McFly. You're asking for it. And now you're going to get it. Alone. Let him go. Let him go. 
Are you okay? George McFly. That's George McFly? Yeah, so I'm yeah. wondering, out, you guys listeners today, especially the guys out there, did you ever find yourself there where you didn't know it, but all of a sudden you're squaring off against a guy that you're pretty certain <laughs> is a great deal tougher than you, but for whatever reason... God has placed you in this place where you're going to have to take him on. Well, let's turn this around for you, my good friend. Yeah. Have you ever been in that position? I have. <laughs> in my case, when I was in sixth grade the first time. Now, my yeah. kids. Went <laughs> <laughs> that always leads to a good story. Well, I, I went to sixth grade twice. You know, I didn't quite get it right the first time. So my parents wanted me to have another shot at it which it, as it was when I went to sixth grade the first time I was in Chicago and we'd moved there from Colorado. And so I didn't dress like somebody from Chicago. You know, they wore dress pants. I wore blue jeans. You know, I wore cuffs that you rolled. You know, I looked like a kid from Colorado. And so naturally I was picked on. And a lot of those kids, they ran in gangs and the meanest, toughest gang in Lincoln junior high school <laughs> was Billy Kilmer's gang and Billy Kilmer having to ride in my bus stop. And every day at lunch, just like clockwork, you know, I mean, every day at, when I went to get on the bus in the morning, Billy Kilmer would take my lunch and he'd throw it on the ground and he'd stomp it and then he'd hand it to me just to show everybody that he was a great deal tougher than me. And this went on, you know, pretty much every day. And so I didn't, you know, I was getting skinnier and skinnier, Al. <laughs> <laughs> but you were getting taller and taller. Well, in January, one day, like George, I guess I just had enough of Billy laughing at me. And like George in the clip, I just let it fly and it hit Billy square in the nose. I hit, hit him in the nose and immediately his nose just trickled a little blood. Well, when that happened, I mean, the crowd went wild. It was like, there was that, who is that? Where did that happen? You know, because this kid was supposed to be the meanest kid in school. So every buddy all on the bus on the way to school oh do you know Dillmore hit Kilmer's bloody nose you know and the next thing I knew word got out that Billy was going to kill me when we got off the bus you know the whole school knew and his whole gang got on the bus that day to, to back him up that you know when we got off the bus he was going to kill me but by this time there was about a foot of snow on the ground and you know the scene, you know, we all get off the bus and they're all screaming, fight, fight, fight. It's classic sixth grade stuff, you know. And I'm thinking this is going to be bad. But I knew one thing. I knew Billy Kilmer's nose would bleed. And so when it started, I just started hammering on the nose. I was like, I'm heading for the... And, you know, I got fairly long arms and that I just kept hammering on his nose until blood just came everywhere and the snow was just turning red and... Next thing you know, Billy Kilmer was down and everybody was like, who is that? Who is that? George McFly. <laughs> that's that's the Dillmore kid. Kilmer. You know, and I was like, oh, man, I God gave me an opportunity to see that I had what it took. But, uh, you know, there's a little caveat to this story. Billy's mom shows up. <laughs> and she was tougher than Billy. <laughs> and she throws me in the car and she takes me to my house. Well, my mother had been aware of my lunch squishing episodes for the you know and she had been wanting me to 
defend myself as my father had. And so she starts taking off on my mom and my mom takes off on her and she says, do you mean to tell me you're not even clean your son up? Get him in here. You know, my mother was a nurse. And so she was like, get him in here. And she starts cleaning up the mother. And then just let me tell you about, you know, and that lady got a lot more than she bargained, <laughs> than for. She bargained for. But it's a fascinating thing that God had me in that situation. And it was something that built into me some confidence that at some point I had what it takes. But, you know, one of the cool things in scripture is God had that for Jesus, even at his baptism. Right, Al? You remember what happened? Oh, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. Right. When he came up out of the water, God himself was telling everybody standing there that this is my son. He has what it takes. But interestingly, right after that, he went out into the wilderness. And who do you have to take on? Oh, he had to take on the enemy. The it devil. was Billy Kilmer. I'm pretty it sure. It was Billy Kilmer. <laughs> it was him. And, and what was the first thing that Billy Kilmer said to Jesus? <laughs> yeah, same kind of thing. So... You know, Al, we may not have the time to get through, but in your situation, we were talking about this story where God had you someplace. And I want you to think, your listeners, think with me. When was that that you all of a sudden found yourself faced with a situation? I don't think I've got what it takes to get over. Maybe I don't have it. And I'm, and I'm dealing with that doubt that I'm, I'm not going to be able to. This is going to go bad for me. Did you have a situation like that, Al? Well, I did. Um, and it was at my previous job, and I'd been there many years and I felt like I was really good at what I did and they brought these project managers in from Seattle of all places to the east coast who thought they knew what they were doing and they were they had set up all these sub projects to do and they'd given some tasks and they did some stuff wrong and they blamed me for it and I said but wait a minute here's the email I got an email that says you said to do this and you said to do this and you said to do that I didn't tell them to do that no, but you were the one that was supposed to be watching it, and you it's your fault. And I got upset, and I waylaid them with words, and I said, look, well, I won't say what I said, but it, was, it wasn't profane, but it was about incompetence. It was about not knowing what you're doing and not listening to the folks that are, your, you know, that are in, in the place to help you. Well, I got in trouble for going off on them, and I got suspended. That was on a... Tuesday, May 1st, I believe it was. Yeah, it was May 1st. And um, a friend of mine walks up. And at this point, when I'm suspended with pay, but they said, you need to calm down. And they said, we're going to remove you from the front of the lines part of the project. I'd been preparing for this project for a year. I had everything ready to go. I just needed them not to get in my way. And but now I'm suspended they're disappointed in me. They're concerned about my anger issues. And I just don't know if I have what it takes anymore. I mean, this is a project that, you know, we knew it was coming for two years and lo and behold, you know, I'm getting pulled from the, the starting lineup and I'm sitting there and a friend came up, came up to me. And he says, I know where you're supposed to be today, but I'm going to go to gay hamburger and I'll be back in a minute. I'm like, what? He's, I know where you're supposed to be this weekend. And it was at a masculine journey boot camp. And that was something that changed my life because the self-doubt, you know, for me, you know, my father didn't grow up in the house, you know, and I believed in God, but we didn't have the connection. I wanted the personal relationship, but, you know, I didn't know how to do it. Well, I heard our brother, Todd Clark, congratulations, Todd, on your new job. But I heard Todd Clark 
given his father by God speech and, and how I'm now one with God. I'm his son and he's, he created me. He spoke into my life that, you know, I was made in his image. So, you know, within a year and a half, I was offered a job making 40% more. Didn't apply for it. They came and asked me, you know, I was given the autonomy that I looked forward to and the doubt was all over me. But when I believed in my father, it was completely erased. Yeah, well, we got to go to a break, but I was wondering, well, we are taking a break. Maybe you can be thinking, when did when did God have you in a place where you really never thought you'd ever come through, but then he was showing you all the time. You have what it takes. That's what we're talking about today, dealing with doubt. We got a lot more Masculine Journey Radio coming up. Stay tuned. How can I help my daughter with her reading? Searching for help with Dachshund reading. No. <laughs> Let me try. Sarah's bright, but when she's reading, she has trouble sounding out words. Playing world music. What? I give up. Wait, I was trying to show you how Sarah feels every day. Redirecting to understood.org. Join parents and experts at understood.org, a free online resource about learning and attention issues to help your child thrive. Brought to you by understood.org and the Ad Council. Freedom is your birthright, secured and preserved by unimaginable sacrifice. We the people form governments to protect our rights, which are endowed by our Creator. Government and those entrusted with power are subject to corruption and must be carefully monitored. Washington is out of control. The debt crisis, regulatory crisis, and the constitutional crisis threaten your continued freedom. Article 5, Convention of States to amend the Constitution, is the remedy. Conventionofstates.com. We are the masculine journey today. We're asking the question, do you have what it takes? And when would, when did you find yourself in that situation where you were dealing with doubt? And of course, you know the whole story now and you can look back with 2020 vision, but at the time you yeah. thought, man, there's, this one's going to be going to go over the top of my head. But then little did you know that you had more that it took than you thought you did. So I want to play a clip here from a, a poor guy that, man, those of us who are married, this is kind of hard to listen to, but can you imagine finding yourself in the situation where all of a sudden your wife is going to see if you got what it takes? This is from an amazing movie called The Encounter, right, uh, Alan? Yeah, I love the movie, and this particular scene is at the beginning, and it's where they're riding in a car, and you're going to hear her kind of chastise him. It's because he tries to reach over and hold her hand to kind of make that connection and say, I love you, I want to be with you, and, and hear how she responds to it. Don't. Maybe we can get a counselor or something. You just don't get it, do you? I don't want to be your wife anymore. I want to be me for a while. I'm not stopping you from being you. <laughs> yeah. As long as being me means being Mrs. Hank Miller. Not anymore. It'll be a fresh start for the both of us. I want a fresh start. So, Vinny, you know, when you listen to that... Don't. You, 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 <laughs> don't? <laughs> you know, there was a point in your life that really the way your, your family believed 
and those kind of things had you in a situation that was even more like don't. This is going to be more radical than what this man was facing. Much more. And uh, can you take us there? Yes, I can. Uh, I fell in love with a woman that was married before and had two children, small children. And we kept company for a while. And I decided I wanted to marry her. So I took her to Alabama, got a divorce, come back and pulled up in the front of my house. Well, not actually in front, about a block away. And lo and behold, there's my father walking up the steps. So I said, well, here goes. Uh, Being Italian, very strict. I knew what the answers were going to be. But anyway, I went to him and I approached him. I says, Pop, I want to talk to you. I don't want to talk to you. Get that woman and get out of here. That was enough, you know. So I walked back to my car, my legs trembling, and within a block I had to make up my mind whether I had it in me to take care of my wife, whom I loved, and the two kids, whom I loved. Yeah, well, I, I think for the listeners to totally understand this, in New York City... This is 1948? No, 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 in the 50s. It's 1951 or two in the early 50s. And you're you're a member, this family is pretty much your financial support, it's your support. And when your father says, you know, get out of here, he's he's talking about like disowning you, and in the family that you're in, that's serious. That's exactly right, you know. uh, So I made up my mind, you know, and I got in the car, and I told my soon-to-be wife. I says, Rita, uh, there's no hope for having a family uh, with my family. It's up to us. And uh, She says, well, okay, let's not get married. I says, oh, no, we're getting married. And we did. I went to my cousin Al, drove out to Patchogue, and I had $7 left from the trip back to Alabama, from Alabama, and before I go any further, I want you to know that I was married to this lady for 44 years, the most amazing woman that you'd ever want to meet. Anyway, I went to Al. He put us up. I got a job, and we put it together, and we raised the kids, and I raised the kids. Sometimes they question me if uh, because along the way, about three years after, uh, we had our own child. And there was always this, you know, does he love her more than he loves us? And if my kids are listening, no, I never once in all the years married to your mom and all the years that I was your dad, I never, ever loved Anna more than I loved you guys. I loved you all the same, and I still do that. One of the wonderful things I happen to know about this story, because we've been good friends for 20 years, is that your father now here's a man that you know at this point he's writing you off and he he stood by that for a period of time but i love what god how that story turned near the end of your father's life would you share that my father lived my father and mother lived in with me and rita and we hadn't spoken well long before that approximately eight years but they would accept the children it wasn't the children's fault but 
uh, my father was living with me. We were taking care of him. And we finally had to put him and my mom in a assisted living. And we would go every single night, 32 miles, to see him and my mother. And my sisters came in one night, the three of them. And they hadn't seen my mom and dad in a, in a couple months, I guess, you know. And he was so much in love with my wife, Rita, that when they came in, he just waved them off, like, you know, you can leave. This is my daughter, my wife, Rita. Well, yeah, she was taking care of him like a nurse, you know. There was no embarrassment, no nothing. And he loved the kids. Unbelievable. He loved my daughter, Rita, and Jimmy, and... Anna Joe and he was a you know, from being a tough guy and I mean a tough guy in heart and in body, uh, he turned into this piece of mush. <laughs> you know, well, just, you know, you, I can't help but think love never fails. That's you exactly know? right. Uh, the, the, you know, you think of that in first Corinthians, you know, right? And but, Al, you have a story along those lines. Well, you know, when I listen to the Hank story, I think, um, and this is, I, I'm going to ex- excuse my mom at the end of this, so hear it gently. But I was 17 years old, playing football. Um, my mother was divorced, and she had got divorced when I was one. Six years later, she married a doctor, and he died not long after, uh, within a year. So I'm 17 now, and she's dating for the first time in, I don't know, six, eight years. And the man starts trying to explain to me about football, telling me, okay, that's basic stuff. And I said, yeah, I know that. And he was, the announcers would say something on TV and he would turn around and say it like I heard it for the first time. And it was just getting really corny. And, you know, I I, I said, do you have anything new to add to the game or are you just going to repeat everything they're saying on TV? And he said, if you're going to act like this, I'm going to leave. And I said, well, don't let the door smack you on your way out. And so we got up and we were ready to go at it. And he said, I'm going to take you outside and teach you a lesson. I said, I don't think I'm going to learn anything from you today. And my mother looked at me and she said, you're going to have to move the car. I go to move the car, come back. And he's standing there and, you know, he's ready to go. And my mom says, Al, go upstairs. And he walks out and my mother looked at me and she said, don't ever make me choose between you and him. You'll lose. And I felt just like Hank did. I walked upstairs. I had, here's my own mother who had done that. And I mean, I, I had no, I had no connection with my father at that time. I was just completely lost. Now, years later, my mother and I talked about it and she said, Al, I was so lonely. I made a decision in anger and I'm so sorry I said that. But there you go. And there, there you're at this place of doubt. And so I learned something this week from William Gurnall wrote a book in the 1600s called The Christian in Complete Armor, which is, you know, my new favorite book. And Al knows whatever book I'm reading currently is my favorite book. And so it's my new favorite book. The it's Christian. phenomenal. <laughs> but there was this little line in it that just seemed little. But the, I wrote a note on it in the book. And by the way, it's a free Google book if you want to get it. It said that as a Christian, when you're under attack by Satan, there's a place of retreat that you can go where Satan can't get to you, and that is in your heart. Because there, God resides. Wow. 
and sin can't enter in, nor can Satan get to you because he doesn't have a key. And so I read that sentence and I noted it. And it was a series of events within a week later, I found myself under a tremendous attack from Satan with a loved one, anger, all that stuff. Situation I clearly thought that I, there's no way I can get past this, that it, you know, it just looked hopeless. And I was right here. I was at this place of doubt. Like, there's no way I can overcome this. I've been down, you know, this is never going to get any better. I don't have what it takes to fix this. It's just clearly not the situation. The bottomless pit. And the Holy Spirit says, Robbie, you think you might be under attack? (laughs) (laughs) And so I began a prayer retreat, seriously, saying, God, I don't know how I get into my heart where Satan can't get to me, but clearly I'm hearing this voice and I need to get I need to get in the bunker with you. I need to get just me and you. I just need to get alone with you. And I kept praying. It took the better part of three hours, really, for me to get there. And when I finally got there, I got to this point of surrender. I said, oh, Lord, I'm not hearing it anymore, so it's just me and you. So can I just give this loved person to you? Can I give this loved one to you? Can I just ask you to come into the situation? And he started to point out things that I needed to forgive. You know, it, it was like, can we get together on this, Robbie? Can we forgive this? And we began to forgive these different things that I needed to forgive. At the end of that, I said, okay, I, I'm seeing things now. And it, the smoke started to clear as I could see God in the situation. And I said, but I need some counsel here, man. I, I, I have no way to know what to do. I have no understanding. I need some counsel. I need to know what's my next move. I was like in the war room. I was in the bunker with God. And he, what's my next move? And what he told me to do was so counterintuitive, I thought there was no way in the world that I could go do that with this person because they're so angry at me. They're going to spit and chew me up and spit me out, and this is going to be horrible, and this can't work. No, no, no. God, really? I can't do this. But finally, I went and did what God asked me to do. Satan wasn't there because it was in my heart. I did exactly that. That loved one literally melted in my arms as we, in tears, um, reconciled and I realized, wow, when I'm in doubt, and I don't know if I have what it takes, there is a place of retreat. It's in your heart. Satan can't get there. Where you can find out that, hey, <laughs> my big brother is Jesus, and he can, he can, he has what it takes. So thank you for listening to The Masculine Journey. By all means, find us on Facebook, Masculine Journey Radio, and Twitter, and MasculineJourneyRadio.com. And, and dot us, org. And hopefully we'll have Sam back next week. Thanks for listening.